if you're uh, if you're here and new for the first time or if you're uh, first time back in a while, um, we're actually in part three of a series that we've been doing called Fresh Start. And if you have no idea what a series looks like in a church context, uh, really we just pick a, a big idea or a theme and we camp out on it for a number of weeks and we'll hit it from a whole heap of different angles. And really the, the whole idea with this series is we, we wanted to... Um, talk about a fresh start at the beginning of the year when people are making resolutions and making plans for the year. And we said, with this series, what we want to do is we want to make a fresh start that actually changes your life. Uh, Because 92% of people never follow through on their New Year's resolutions, never follow through on the fresh start that they want for their life. And so we said, we want to change that. And so this has kind of been a little bit of a series with a difference. Uh, We said, this is not going to be a motivational speaking series. Uh, because that doesn't work 92% of the time. So we want to we help you actually hold on to that. And so in part one, we looked at this idea of, you know, what do you need to leave behind in order to s- embrace your fresh start? So many of us kind of say, hey, this is what I want this year. This is what I, I, wanna, I need to work on this year. But I want to do that by holding on to all the bad habits and all the old habits that have led me to needing a fresh start in the first place. So we said, you need to get rid of some things. Then last week, we looked at the number one thing that no one thinks they have but will prevent you from having a fresh start. Uh, And that thing that no one thinks they have is called pride. Uh, And if you weren't here last week, chances are your initial reaction is like, well, of course I don't have pride because that's everyone's reaction. Um, And so we talked about that, how we may have a little bit more pride than what we think. And so the last two weeks have really been looking at like what will prevent you from having a a fresh start. And the next two weeks, we kind of want, we want, what we want to do is want to shift direction And we say, hey, these are the things you need to leave behind and these are the things you need to pay attention to. But then these are the things in the next two weeks that you need to uh, embrace if you want to keep your fresh start. Because so many people, they start off the year and they kind of, I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to save money or I'm going to invest in my marriage or I'm going to develop my relationship with God. And then February rolls around and all of a sudden it's like, hey, where was that goal? Where was that resolution? What happened to that fresh start? And so while starting is important, keeping it and maintaining it is so important as well. And we're going to kind of start by looking at how to keep that, by talking about this thing, this word, success. It's a really weird word to talk about, but, but it's a word that that's so pr- um, kind of connects to this fresh start because really all of us, when we make that fresh start, and we say, hey, this is what I want the year to look like, what we're saying is, this is kind of what success would look like for me this year. This is, this is what I want to be. This is in my mind or in your mind what success looks like. And to kind of get us talking around this idea, I want to introduce you to two people uh, who you've probably never heard of, because I hadn't heard of them uh, until a little while ago, uh, Laszlo and Kara Polgar. No, they're not super famous. Laszlo and Clara Polgar, though, they're actually Hungarians. Uh, Laszlo is an educational psychologist, and Clara, his wife, uh, is a teacher. And Laszlo and Clara are so interesting, because Laszlo sort of had this, this idea and this concept. Um, he believed that successful people are not born with a skill set, that you can actually develop it, that it's about how much time and how much effort that you put into it. And so Laszlo kind of, um, when, they, when he was married to Clara, they started to, because uh, Clara was a teacher and so she had an interest, she was like, well, I kind of want to see how that plays out from an educational side, because can you teach someone to be successful? And so um, what I'm going to say next might frighten you if you're a parent, but it's okay, we'll talk through it, it's not as bad as it sounds. They decided to trial this on their children. Um, their three children, Susan, Sophia, and Judith. And the way they decided to trial it was they essentially said, so Laszlo and Clara said, well, what if, what if we created an environment where they were, they were going to be chess prodigies? 
And so what they did was, before they were born, they kind of turned their house into a chess museum of sorts. They put famous chess people up on the walls. They put chess books all around. They bought lots and lots of chess boards. And they, they didn't force their, uh, their daughters into chess. They let them pick up on this whole idea of chess based on the environment that, that they were in. And what was fascinating is Susan. Susan's the oldest. Susan started playing chess when she was four. And by the age of six, she was beating adults. Sophia, Sophia, she's the middle child. And Sophia was actually a world champion by the age of 15. And Judith, Judith's, Judith's probably, uh, if you're in chess world, chances are you've heard of Judith Polgar. Because Judith Polgar is the, the best female player, a chess player in the history of the world. Because by age 15, Judith Polgar was, in was known and was the youngest ever grand master of chess. Now that kind of sounds like some weird kind of culty term. It's just the highest honor that you can get in chess world. Okay, by, by 15, Judith Polgar was a world champion, uh, was a grandmaster at chess. And what's so interesting is when you, when you talk to these three girls and you say to them, hey, was it a stressful environment? Did it, you know, were your parents overbearing? Did they really press on you that you've got to be a chess master? All of them will say no. Actually, quite the opposite. We, our parents had to stop us from playing chess. We loved playing chess so much that our parents would come in and, and Judith and Sophia were, were caught multiple times sneaking up in the middle of the night, jumping into the bathtub, turning the light on, and they would play each other in the bathtub so their parents, like they didn't think that with the curtain that the, the light would get out. And they would say, no, our parents stopped us playing, uh, had to stop us from playing chess because we would play it so much. They always say, well, we had a great childhood. But what was interesting and what, um, what other psychologists who have looked at this kind of, uh, this life and what Laszlo and Clara kind of discovered through this research is that we don't initially determine what success looks like. We imitate what it looks like. And maybe that's true for you in your life. I know it was definitely true for me in my life because when I was younger in primary school, uh, all my friends played sports. And so in my mind, I was like, well, if I want to be successful, I wanna, I'm going to play sports. The only problem was that like, the two major sports at my primary school were rugby league and cricket. Okay? And I was, about, I was skinnier than I am now, which means if someone, like, I, would, I would get broken in half. Uh, playing rugby league, and I, I just made the cricket team, okay? And, and to give you an idea of how terribly bad I was at the cricket team, in our grade five grand final, a ball went up in the air, and all I had to do was catch this ball to win the, win the, uh, the, the final for us. And as I'm getting underneath it to catch this ball, my teammates yell at me, don't drop it, Butterfingers. That was the level of success that I had. In, I caught it, okay? We won the game. It was all good. That was the only good thing I did all year. But, but I kind of looked at my friends and I looked at, at the people around me and I began to imitate what I thought and what I saw was successful. And chances are you do that in your own life too. You look at your friends and it's interesting because so many of us are friends with people of similar interests because we can talk about, hey, well, this is what it looks like. And it's interesting to see how often as our friendship groups change, our interests change. Why? Because we don't initially determine what success looks like. We imitate it. And so we imitate those, those, uh, our family and our friends. We imitate what culture dictates. We imitate what influences dictate. And, and um, there's three main ways that we, we imitate success. And I'm going to put them up and then I'm going to explain them a little bit because there's three ways that we look at it. The, the success, we get uh, what success looks like from the close, the many, and the powerful. The close, the many, and the powerful. The close... These are those people that are like in your inner circle. It starts out in life as probably your family, 
or your closest friends. But then as you go through primary school, as you go through high school, you start to expand that. As you get out into the workforce, as you start to maybe make work colleagues, those, those friends that you have in workspaces, those people that you begin to rely on more in life. Uh, for those of you who your parents have passed away now, you kind of have an, another circle of friends that you would kind of say, These, this circle of friends is like my family. Maybe for some of you who are connected in church, that would be your small group or that would be your connect group. And so we determine success based on, at times, what our close group of friends say. What kind of job? What kind of income? What kind of school we send our kids to? What kind of house? What kind of suburb? All these things. The other way that we determine what success looks like is by looking at the many. You ever heard your kids say when, you know, uh, when they, they come to you and they say, hey, can we sleep over during the week? And you go, no, you can't sleep over during the week. And they say something like, but everybody's doing it. And you say, well, who's everybody? And they're like, oh, well, uh, 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 uh. And, and this is so often for us. We, what we see and what they're determining is, hey, I look out and I see in culture or I see in, in the wider cir- circles of community, people are generally, from what I observe, holding this up on the pedestal of what success looks like whether that's a certain type of career, whether that's a certain path. And we look out and we say, hey, well, if you want to fit in in culture, you need to think this way. You need to hold these values. You need to hold these beliefs. And so, so success can be drawn from the many. The final way is the powerful. Now, we don't really use necessarily that term in culture as much. Think influencers. Think celebrities. Think people that we idolize. We, we get this idea of success, particularly with social media now. Where just on your phone, you can get an insight into what everyone is doing every single day of their life. And so we get, we get an insight that we never had before into, into the, uh, the actors that we admire, the people in business that we admire, the parents and, and the friends that we admire, those kind of people that we look up to and we idolize, our favorite sports stars, all these sorts of things. And we kind of look at these people and go, wow, that's what they do in their life. And for those, of, uh, for those of you who are maybe in the same industry or maybe you want to parent like that person or, or you want to uh, have the, the wealth that those, those people have, you look at them and you go, wow, if, if I want success, I need to imitate what they're doing. I need to act like they're acting. And I need to behave in that way. And for so many of us, these are the three ways that we kind of determine what success looks like. Now, I'm not going to be that like church guy that gets up and bashes culture and is like, oh, this is evil, don't do that, like steer away from that. Because I actually don't believe that we should walk away. I believe that you know, we, we live in this culture, we live in this society, and so we should leverage, while, uh, leverage uh, what culture is doing and the, the ways culture is acting to help people see Jesus. But what I will say is, what happens if you don't recognize that you're imitating success? If you don't ever determine for yourself what success looks like, you will eventually, maybe not right now, maybe not this week or maybe not this month, maybe not even this year, but if you don't determine what success looks like for you and what success in a fresh start looks like for you, then you will eventually get to a point in your life, because everyone does it if they don't determine what success looks like, where you ask this question, why? Why? You will get to a point where you've, you've looked at the people around you and you've said to yourself, I need that promotion. I need to have that job. I need to be making this amount of money. And you will get to a point where you get that promotion and you earn that amount of money. And then you'll get there and you'll go, why did I want this in the first place? Or, or you'll, you'll, um, you'll uh, buy a new house or you'll buy that car or you'll buy that jet ski and then all of a sudden you'll have a mortgage and you won't know how to make the repayments and you'll start to ask, why? 
Why did I care so much? Why was I so drawn to, to, to imitate and look and view success in this way? For some of you, it'll be the, the amount of, of time that you work and then you'll have a conversation with your wife or your kids will say something to you like, why are you never around anymore? And you'll ask this question, you'll say, why? Why have I viewed success in this way and why has it led me to this point? And here's the thing, I don't want you to go through life imitating what success looks like. I want you to determine it for yourself. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a single request. And it was a single request that was made of Jesus. And it led Jesus to kind of redefine and kind of explain what success looks like for a follower of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus or you're kind of exploring the whole Jesus thing, here's what I want you to know. Uh, this, you don't have to apply any of this. Jesus is not talking to people who don't follow him or don't believe in him. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, what I would say is what we're going to explore tonight has the potential to add a category to your thinking, to add another option to your thinking, to sort of say, hey, well, if I was to change what's I've, how I viewed success, this is a category that you could have. But if you are a follower of Jesus tonight, I, I, I want you to pay specific attention to this because chances are in your life you've wanted to make fresh starts or you've stepped out and the, and the reason that it hasn't worked and the reason that you felt tension is because you've determined what that fresh start would look like. You've determined what success would look like and you've never turned to Jesus. You've never heard how Jesus defines success. And you get to a point where you ask why and you need a fresh start all over again. And so tonight we're going to look at, or today rather, we're going to explore and look at why and how we can get on the front foot early on. And and so this kind of request begins um, with a mother of, uh, of two boys, James and John, and she comes to Jesus. And this is what she says. She says, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, because that's how people were kind of identified in that day and age. They didn't have last names. It was like, I'm James, son of Zebedee. Um, people would kind of know that. Came to Jesus with her sons. Now it's not, we don't find this. Matthew um, is, is the person who's writing this uh, biographical, uh, biographical account and recording this event. Matthew uh, doesn't tell us in this interaction who James and John's mo mother's name is, but later on he does, and her name's Salome. And so Salome kind of comes to Jesus with her sons, and she says this, she knelt respectfully to ask a favor. So right off the bat, this is kind of, you know, within our culture, we kind of, we laugh and we joke and we throw banter, and then there's that point where we go, no, 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 but, it, but in all seriousness, in all seriousness. And so Salome kind of comes into Jesus and she kneels down and this is kind of the cue, like, no, in all seriousness, I've got something that I, that I genuinely want to ask you and it may sound like a bit of a joke, but I need you to understand that what I'm about to ask you is serious. And this is what she asks Jesus. She says, oh, sorry, and Jesus says, what is your request? And she, said, she replied, in your kingdom, we'll get back to that word in a second, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, next to you, one on the right, and the other on your left. Now, she, she uses this word kingdom because that's not really a word we use in our, in our modern um, culture. We use like democracy. That's, a, that's a, often a word we use. Kingdom sounds like Game of Thrones, something coming on there. And the reason she uses this word kingdom is because at that time, the Jewish people, Salome and James and John and Jesus were Jews, and they were under Roman rule. And the way that Jesus taught and the way that Jesus spoke, Jesus spoke about this kingdom coming. And so in her mind, Salome has this picture and this idea of what a kingdom looks like. And a kingdom looks like a ruler on a throne 
dictating terms to people. And so Salome had this picture in her mind of what a kingdom was. And she's like, well, if Jesus, if you're this Messiah, if you're this savior of the Jewish people, you'll be a military leader. You will overthrow the Romans and you will be our new king. And so what she says is, what, when you become this king, because she had this idea in her head, what I want you to do, if it's not too much trouble, is I'd love one of my boys on your right and one of my boys on your left. Because in a kingdom, the person on the right and the person on the left were seen as the, the kind of next in charge after the king. The right had a little bit more authority than the left, but they were always seen as, as two in charge. If you were, if you were in a, a, just a general seating, the right would be the place of honor and the left would be the place of shame. But in a kingdom, the right and the left were both given the same status, just the right a little bit higher. So she goes, this is the request I want from you. Let my boys in. And Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. In other words, you kind of, I get why you've got that picture of success, Salome. I do. James, John, I, I get why you would, you would kind of whisper in your mum's ear and sort of say, hey, go to Jesus and ask him for this for me. I get why you do this. But you, you've kind of missed the mark. And this is the first inkling we sort of get that Jesus is about to redefine what success looks like. Because he goes on. He says, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? That's weird, right? We don't say things like that anymore. Okay, let's just point that out. So really all this means is, is in, in this day and age, when, you, when people talked about drinking from someone else's cup, what they were saying, what Jesus was essentially saying to the two guys was, hey, I, if you want those places of honor, do you realize that, that you're going to have to experience the same things I experience? That you're going to have to go through and you're going to have to live the same way that I live? Because to drink someone's cup was to experience and live the same way as that other person. And so Jesus kind of asked them this question, you know, well, you want these two seats, like are you willing to kind of follow me, essentially? And they, they answer this, oh yes, they replied, we are able. They kind of just missed the suffering part. They were like, no, 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 what, what we want is these two, two places. Yes, we're ready, we're ready, we want this. And, uh, and what happens next is Jesus kind of, kind of says to them, he's like, well, look, you know, I, I don't really get to make all the rules, fellas. Okay, I don't get to make all the rules, but, but you will drink from my cup. Okay, so, you, you know, you are going to, I can tell that you're going to follow me, but I don't get to make the rules about, like, who sits in what place. And you know when you really want something, you kind of hear what you want to hear? I imagine that James and John were kind of sitting there with Jesus, and they're like, oh, right, we won't get those places. I get it, you can't really say that out loud, but we get you, Jesus. Like, we, yeah, totally, we understand that. And we don't really know how... The other disciples, because there was 12. So the, James and John are, are two of the 12. But the other 10 find out. And I kind of like, when I not told this, but I kind of like to think, because I would imagine if I was James or John, that the way they would have found out is I would have walked straight back in and be like, guys, you will never guess what Jesus just told us. It's kind of like, I imagine a picture uh, like, uh, like on The Bachelorette or The Bachelor. When someone goes on a group date or a single date and they come back in and everyone else is waiting, they're like, what did they say to you? Everyone comes back in and the guy's like, what did Jesus say to you? What were you having the conversation about? What did he say? And I imagine that the guy's like, ha ha, he told us we were going to have the places of honor. We're going to be at the right, one of us is going to be at the left, and we're going to be with Jesus when this whole kingdom thing comes in. And this is what happens. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Exactly kind of like the bachelor or the bachelorette. They're like, oh my goodness, I'm so happy for you. And then that cuts to the camera. I cannot believe that he said that to her. I cannot believe that she said that to him. Like, they told me that I was special. And this kind of, this whole indignant 
thing, right? Because, and the reason that they got annoyed, that they got frustrated is because they had a picture of what success looked like. In their minds, they were like, we want those spots. We want those places. Who are James and John to get them? We're so much better equipped than them. And Jesus kind of uses this as a teaching moment because he's this master teacher. He says, but Jesus called them together. And this is what he said. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. In other words, like you've looked at the world, right? You've looked at the many, you've looked at the powerful and you've determined what success looks like. And you know what success looks like, right? It's, it looks like people pushing down on others. It looks like people kind of asserting their authority and getting people to do whatever they want them to do. That's what success looks like to you, right? And he says, but among you, it will be different. It's not going to be like what you see out there. And then he explains and shows them what this different will look like. He says, whoever wants to be a leader among you. And I can, you can almost imagine the guys going, Jesus, no, time out, man. We didn't say leader. Okay, we want to be in the kingdom. Okay, we want to be in the kingdom. We want to like have the place of honor. Jesus goes, no, 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 leader. He's kind of asking, like, why do you follow me? You don't follow me because I'm a king. I'm a carpenter. Like, I'm a chippy, guys. Like, you don't follow me because I'm this, I've got all this power. You follow me because I'm a leader. And then he says, whoever wants to be a leader must be your servant. You want to you wanna be a big shot? Start looking out for the needs of other people. And then he adds this in. He says, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. You want those places of honor? Well, in what I'm talking about, in what Jesus is talking about, he says, you need to look after other people. You need to not be so concerned on the seats, on, the, on, on getting a position, but your focus should be and has to be on other people. Essentially what Jesus is saying is this, is that success is not found in personal achievement, but in serving others. When Jesus talks about success, it's not about in getting at something after your name or something on a biography on a bio that tells people how great you are but it's found in serving others and i don't know about you but i just kind of like to imagine like what it would be like if i was one of the 12 um, and if i was one of the 12 getting this taught to me i would be like yeah good one jesus but but everyone follows you it's easy to say that when you're at the top when you're the top dog isn't it it's easy to say oh just serve everyone when everyone's serving you jesus isn't it it's really easy but you're not, you don't understand where we're coming from. And then Jesus kind of says this to show him exactly what he means. He says, but even the Son of Man, which was a, a name Jesus would refer to himself as, came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, if you look at my life, fellas, and if you see what's going to happen soon, the reason that I stepped into history is not to, not to make a name for myself. The reason, Jesus says, that he stepped into history is actually to give his life for the mistakes and the mishaps and to use that churchy word, sin, of humanity. Jesus said, the whole reason I came into history was for others, not for myself. And really what Jesus is trying to drive home here to them is success in a fresh start. It requires you to shift the spotlight off yourself and onto others. If you really want to, to look at what Jesus' definition of success is, Jesus' definition is get the spotlight off you and get it onto others. Because success is really found in serving other people. And sadly, 
So many people walk away from the church because the church, they had an impression of the church that hey, they're just all about themselves. They're just all about looking after themselves. They don't really care about the world. They talk about the world and they talk about loving others. But if you look at the way they live their life, they're really just focused and concerned all about themselves. And here's the problem. Most of those people are right. Most of those people are right. The church has this tendency, like all people though, to ha- has this tendency to make everything about us and make everything about ourselves. And so we need to deliberately put in place things that make the, this church and this community about other people. And so this week, I want to kind of start to help you cultivate a habit of thinking of other people. And I'm going to show you what that, the habit I want you to start to cultivate is, but I guarantee you're going to see this and you're going to be like, Chris, that's below me, okay, right, that's, that's almost too easy. But if you want to shift the spotlight off yourself and onto others, you need to make it a habitual thing that you do. You need to make this something automatic. So this is how you do it. I want you to serve one person per day for the next seven days. I want you to take the spotlight off you and I want you to put it on one person per day for the next seven days. And in case you're like, well, how would that work? What, would I, what does that even look like to serve someone? I've actually created a spotlight starter pack for you. And I've actually created, I've put eight, okay, eight of these down. So if you want an extra credit mark, you can do it eight days in a row, not seven days in a row. Okay, so, so here, are, here are some eight, okay, some of you are like, there's only four on this screen. Don't worry, there's another slide. Spotlight starter pack. Here's the first one. Send a note or send a text or send an email or give a phone call of encouragement to someone. Call out the greatness in someone. If someone's done something that you see is awesome, call it out. Let them know that you see that. Here's another one. For one day, when you're in a conversation with someone, ask more questions than you answer. Go in and think, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to give a whole heap of answers. I'm just going to ask questions because I want the spotlight to be on them. Here's another easy one. Pay it forward. When you're getting that next coffee, when you're maybe doing the groceries or whatever, just pay it forward. Say, hey, can I just throw five bucks down? Can I just throw ten bucks for the next person in line or whoever's coming next? Pay it forward. Pray for someone. And don't do the whole Christian, oh, I'll pray for you, and then forget to do it. Actually do it. Here's some more. Ask, how can I help you today? Walk up to your boss. Walk up to your coworker. Here's a really good one. Walk up to that person in your workplace that annoys you like no one else. And just simply ask them, hey, what do you need from me today? How can I help you today? Give old clothes away, okay? If you're into the whole Mary Kondo, like tidying up thing, and if you don't know what that is, like, Get on Netflix and you'll understand. Give some old clothes away. Tidy your life up. Uh, sorry, tidy your clothes up, rather. And benefit not only yourself with a cleaner house, but benefit some other people by giving some old clothes away. Lead at your local church. That one's so easy. If you believe that the local church is the help of the world, get off the sidelines and get in the game. Serve other people. Here's one that's so difficult, right? It's so difficult that we kind of don't want to do it. Serve your family. Serve your family. Parents, you can tell your kids to do this one, okay? Serve your family. And the reason why I say this, and the reason why I want us to start with just this one little baby step this week by serving one person every day for the next seven days is because while so many of us go, well, Chris, this probably wouldn't, really wouldn't be my definition of success. 
If you had to ask me what success looked like, I wouldn't define it by serving other people. Here's the thing though. When you think about the people that have had the biggest impact on your life, when you think about what you want people to remember you by, chances are there's no dollar value associated to it. Chances are there's no boat or house or suburb you lived into associated, associated with it. What you want people to remember you for is the impact you had on their lives. <coughs> Excuse me. Because the success of a life is always measured by how much of it is given away. When you think of the people that have had the biggest impact in your life, the people you look up to in your circle that you aspire to be like, we are drawn to people who give their life away. We are drawn to people who always say, yeah, I've got time for a phone call. Yeah, I've got time for a coffee. Yeah, I can help. Yeah, I can serve you. We are drawn towards people who give their life away. And so this week, begin to change your definition of success. Begin to take the spotlight off yourself and serve other people and give your life away. And then join us next week because we're going to talk about uh, one really, really key way that you can hold on to and ensure that your fresh start doesn't fizzle out after January. But let's pray really quickly, shall we? Jesus, it's so easy to look out in our circle of friends or in culture or in those influences and people that we aspire to be like and to, to get a definition of success, to have an idea of success handed to us and then we want to imitate that for ourselves. But Lord, help us Help us not to be people that just merely settle for imitating what we're told. Help us to be people that actually determine what success looks like. And Jesus, for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, maybe this week we really have to have a long, hard look and say, hey, am I really living to serve others? Is my definition of success, is this whole idea of a fresh start, is it really geared around others or is it really geared around me? And Lord, for those people in this room who, who don't follow you, I pray that they would ask the same question. You know, is this idea that they've had of success, is it really what they want in life? When they get to the end, is that really what they want success to look like for them? Because Jesus, you offer and you show us that success is about taking the spotlight off ourselves and about putting us it on others. And while that's so easy to say, it's so difficult to do. So help us step out this week. Help us to shift that spotlight off ourselves and on to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.